for me, it's not so much corruption, it's the shifting scales between sovereign power and transnational capital power. Mm. And this is what I want to get to the core of the book, is that I think what's really interesting about the conversation of empire and decolonization, which is linked to the material basis of today, is that in that moment, for me, the two steps I would say is empire was using transnational capital to enrich the West at the expense of the rest of the world. Mm. Decolonization was the moment in which governments in the West said, we're going to try and protect the capital elements of empire by undermining the sovereign elements of the newly independent countries. And I think that the moment that we're in now in the 21st century is now, you know, the West realizing that this is a bit of a Frankenstein monster. Yeah. That by empowering transnational capital to undermine, you know, the sovereign powers of places in the third world, we're now in a world where even countries like the UK and even the US are really struggling to be able to put the reins on the power of multinational capital. Mm. Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. Awesome. Yeah. So, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Uh, today, I am here with Kojo Koram. Pleased to uh, pleased to have you here, man. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's a pleasure. Yeah, no problem. So, do you want to tell people a bit about your book to start with? Like, give us a give people an idea of what's it about and why you decided to write it as a like a good start for the conversation. I think. Sure. Thank you. Um, so, the book that I'm here to talk about today um, is a book called Uncommonwealth. Of Britain and the aftermath of empire, going to be published um, on February the seventeenth in all good bookshops and probably some not good bookshops as well. <laughs> but um, it's looking at the um, aftermath of the empire, which has become quite a bit of a topic of conversation in Britain of late. You know, with the Colston statue, with um, the publication of some really fantastic books that have looked at the kind of identity aspect of empire and the way that the kind of cultural legacy of empire is marked out within our museums and within our educational curriculums. And I think that a lot of those books have been really useful in actually introducing the topic of empire into the public conversation. But the reason why I wrote the book is that I felt that it was missing the kind of main point of empire. Um, you know, empire was not as we might think from looking at the news, like a giant statue building project all across the world. <laughs> like the point of empire was the accumulation and extraction of wealth across the globe. And that is the kind of legacy that I'm really trying to touch upon with Uncommonwealth, thinking about how much of that went away with decolonization, how much of that stayed, and crucially, how much of that drives the kind of inequality, insecurity that we see not only all around the world, but even in the UK today. Mm, okay, so where does this where where did where did the the empire s 
start essentially? Like when did where did this colonialization oh yeah, colonization, colonialization, there there. Say that again. It's not a word. <laughs> Polonization. Yeah. When did this really begin? And was this extraction of wealth like laid out as the goal early on? So I think when we start just like pull that sucker right like a bit closer to your mouth, fist away. Is that a better? Yeah, that's better. Fantastic. I think when we think about the history of the British Empire, we really have to go back to like before Britain itself. We often talk about this idea of Britain had an empire, Britain had an empire, but it's more accurate if we look at the history to say that the empire had Britain in terms of the British Empire or English Empire as it started predates the unification of Scotland and England. By the time of the 1707 Act of Union, England's already got colonies in Jamaica, Barbados. It's already got slave forts in Sierra Leone, in the Gold Coast, which now becomes Ghana. Um, you know, Scotland was also driven into the imperial, into the unification agreement by its own failed um, imperial project in what was called New Caledonia in Panama. And so the imperial drive to accumulate wealth is really part of what actually brings the union of England and Scotland together and produces Britain as we see it today. And so that's the kind of history of, of, of the United Kingdom. And that's why ignoring um, the legacy of empire stops us from really understanding what this country is and how it came together. And it's not just at the state level that the um, kind of imperial voyage drove the history of this country. We really see it at the commercial and private level. The thing that really distinguished the British Empire from its European rivals, um, France, Belgium, the Dutch, is that it was a much more private and capitalist-driven project than it was a state-driven project. This is part of why it's been so easy to kind of erase from histories of British nationalism, because the history of British nationalism is, you know, the gunpowder plots and Henry VIII and, you know, state matters which are very much tied to this particular island, mm. whilst the history of empire is the East India Company, the Levant Company, the Muscovy Company, mm. you know, 16th and 17th century um, private corporations that extended across the world in order to extract wealth and transfer it back to the UK today. And who really wants to read about the kind of, you know, accounting details of the East India Company? Like, you know, most people in the street couldn't name a member of the East India Company to save their life. You know, this is why the Edward Colson thing I saw was so interesting is not just with him being, you know, a slave trader, as people mentioned, but mm. because he was the director of the Royal African Company, that he was invisibilized behind this corporation that allowed um, huge amounts of wealth to be accumulated through the dehumanization and trading of men, women, and children, you know, 84,000 men, women, and children, a quarter of which died on the journey because the conditions were so horrific. But the invisibilization of those corporate actors allowed the history of empire to be seen as something that has been forgotten from the history books. And so I think by focusing on that, we get a new angle on British history, but we also start to understand the kind of trajectory of the multinational corporation that we see today. Mm. A lot of those corporations didn't disappear. The Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which was one of the major um, uh, colonial companies in terms of extending Britain's control over Persia, that's British Petroleum. That's BP. They're still around today. The Royal Niger Company, mm. that's Unilever. They're still around today. Change of name, you know, is... Any, it like, it's physically like the same company? The say, exact same company, just like 
you know, is it Stringer Bell in the wire who talks about when you have a brand issue, just change the name? Yeah. That's all these companies did following decolonization, change mm -hmm. the name, but allowed the same structures to be in place. And so when we think about, as we're having these conversations, I think even in the West now, even in the UK and the US, there's all these conversations about the impossibility of controlling multinational conglomerates, these giant companies, your Amazons, your Facebooks, your Googles, the history of how the multinational corporation came to this position of omnipotence tied back to the history of empire and particularly to the history of the British Empire. Mm. <laughs> it's just typical of people to start like, it was so quiet earlier, but it's all right. This is what editing is for. Exactly. <laughs> what the podcast and Peckham's all about, you know? yeah. Exactly. We need to hear somebody preaching in the street. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, oh. yeah. <laughs> so a couple of the things you said there really, really interest me, actually. Um, I l that, that, that idea of the invisibilization of the corporate role in empire is so unbelievably accurate in, or not accurate, well, accurate, obviously, but it's it's so relevant to right now as well mm -hmm. do you know what i mean that that because that's people like the, the the sort of globalized world has also become like a shadow empire for for corporations so it's it's really i hadn't ever heard anyone put it like that i love that oh, um so yeah. the first question i really had was how much is the government or how much was the government involved in this side of empire so like you you, you had the the royal africa company the east india company mm -hmm. things like that so what, yeah, to what extent was the government involved or to what extent were they sort of just like, you know, go for it and, you know, if there's a problem, come to us or like, do, do you know, yeah, was yeah. it sort of just like go and, and see what happens or were they sort of actively like planning things or? Well, there's a really interesting history and there's, you know, this kind of like interplay between the state and, the, and, and private capital um, was really skillfully and I think masterfully kind of put together through the British Imperial Project. There was always an interrelation with it through them. I mean, just to the basis that to become a colonial company, to get a monopoly, to have trading rights over part of the world, you needed a royal charter. Mm. And so the royal charter is what creates the East India Company in 1600. And in order to get the royal charter, you obviously need to appeal to the interests of the sovereign. And so there is a kind of licensing of these companies by the state. But then after, you know, take the East India Company as an example, after it was created in 1600, it mushrooms to the extent that by the 18th century, I mean, it's 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 an entity that we almost haven't seen since. Mm -hmm. It's the de facto sovereign of one of the most populous regions of the world. It has a private army that's larger than the British army at that time. Yeah, it collects taxes. It runs its own court. You know, it 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 functions. You know, as not just a government, but almost a kind of supranational organization. Maybe like you know the the EU today or something mm -hmm. like that. But it's still in terms of its actual shareholder structure, a private company. And so you, these are the kind of de facto sovereigns that the British Empire really mastered in. Um, the Hudson Bay Company in, in North America as well, having that similar role of a kind of state institution that's also a private company. And you can see this in the charters of them. They're given the right to collect taxes. They're given the right to arrest and imprison people. These are powers that we often think of as a sovereign power, but it allowed 
the British state and particularly the kind of historicization of Britain to kind of outsource the history of empire, to make mm. it one step removed, um, to be like, you know, this isn't the history of Britain. This is the, the work of the East India Company or this is the work of the Royal Niger Company. It's not the British mm. story. And so I think that it allowed for that kind of plausible deniability by the state but in terms of when we look at the individuals, there was always a revolving door from these companies into Parliament. There was always act, you know, the, the um, chairman of the Royal African Company was the brother of the king. And, you know, so there's always this kind of close relationship. But um, in the way that it actually functioned, I think that it allowed for that kind of um, encasing of the British state and British history from the Imperial project. And that's what's made it so easy for there to be such an amnesia about the British project in the contemporary moment. Um, you know, when we think about following decolonization, considering that the British empire is a kind of 400 year history mm. that really forms so many of the institutions and culture and the demography of this country, mm. we know next to nothing about it. Yeah. Um, I yeah. always, always play this uh, little game with my students when I start teaching about this project where I just put two countries up and I'm like, one of these was in the British Empire, one of them wasn't. Tell me which one, you know. <laughs> Nobody ever gets you it right. Us, can you can you can we do some of those now? Like, yeah, no, like absolutely. So like, well, yeah. Give me give me some examples. I want to know how wrong I am. <laughs> so somewhere I can't remember which ones. I'll have to like two pictures on there. One would be like um, Botswana and Gabon. Which one was in the British Empire? Which one wasn't? I am gonna say Botswana. Correct. We we'll got that right. So you're on point with that one. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I would go with others like. Um, which other ones would I have? Oh, I just remember what's on the list. Um, Malaysia or the Philippines? Oh, um, I'm going to say the Philippines. Oh, no, lucky no. Oh. The Philippines was a Spanish and later, you know, proxy American empire. But no, Malaysia was part of the British empire. And so like, and this is something, you know, I'll do to conferences of academics, you know, learned people, you know, very educated, but when we think about where did the British Empire extend to, you know, what was part of the informal empire and wasn't part of the empire, you know, mm. places like Iran and Argentina that had British influence, mm. but weren't part of the empire uh, formally, um, you know, what stages did places leave the empire? Did they join the empire? We have no understanding of that. And for me, I think a big part of that is because of the way in which so much of it was outsourced to private capital interest that allowed it to be seen as separate in a way that like, you know, we don't have figures like, Cortes or Pizarro in Spain, these kind of famous national hero colonialists, or Napoleon in France, you know, it's seen as one yeah. step removed. Yeah. I mean, most of the, the thing that I'd say maybe Britain has is the closest thing to it would be like, like, ex like people who were explorers or yeah. deemed explorers, yeah. like, Livingstone, like, yeah. Yeah. Even like a Cecil Rhodes, so the next then, you know, might, yeah. be, might be along those lines. Yeah. Um, but that's the closest thing we probably have to. Yeah. Mm, that's interesting. And I think the big reason, um, as well as thinking about new ways to understand our history, the big reason that kind of drove me to write the book was the way in which I feel that the kind of contemporary discussion around empire 
has really focused on this kind of cultural and identity aspect of it, mm. which I think actually plays into the ability to make it this cultural issue by saying that the only people who care about empire are, you know, kind of racial minorities or people who, um, you know, are concerned with statues that are in the, in the city. And if you care about real issues, if you care about, you know, inward poverty mm. of mothers, if you care about the deindustrialized North, if you care about um, austerity being imposed on the British state in 2008, mm. you don't have time to talk about empire. I mean, this is these are niche topics of mm. kind of you know identity university snowflakes. And what I want to do by talking about the material and capitalist aspects of the British Empire is remind us that no, if you want to talk about global inequality today, you might want to talk about the British overseas territories that have become the main tax havens in the world. Yeah. The Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, mm. these, according to the Tax Justice Network, are the three largest tax havens in the world. They are ongoing legacies of the British Empire. There's not, you know, the Cayman Islands isn't magically British overseas territories. It was taken as a British colony in the 1670 Treaty of Madrid alongside Jamaica. And then, following Jamaica's independence, transformed into this offshore warehousing of financial wealth. Mm. You know, this is part of the history of the British Empire. If we want to talk about the history of the British Empire, we want to be talking about the way in which London's commercial court continues to be the main mechanism for financial disputes all around the world, which make the, the really yeah absolutely 70 why is that is that because all the accounting firms are in london so yeah london you know there's some um 70 percent of cases in the london commercial court in 2019 were foreign company disputes and so london continues to be in the city of london continues to be the kind of um you know um pathway through which global financial capital moves which allows for an enrichment of particularly some areas of this city, mm. a lot of poverty in the city as well. Yeah. But this massive differentiation between the living standards of the parts of London that appeal to global capital and the rest of the United Kingdom, that legacy is part of the British Empire. And so when we talk about that part of it, I think it makes it much harder to try and separate out people who care about, you know, um, kind of the left behind, mm. you know, those who've been struggling with in-work poverty and material interests with those who are concerned with issues of kind of race and identity. When we look at empire through a kind of material lens, we can see how those two things aren't opposed to each other, they're actually connected. Mm. You're really making me think about this in, in a way that I had never thought about, about the British empire really properly before. So I guess my first introduction to this topic was the, the film, The, the Spider's Web. Of course, yeah, yeah brilliant. Um, which, which is, I get like addressing, I guess, quite a lot of the some of the same issues Absolutely. that you, you talk about in your book. But it's it's striking to me how much of what you're saying now about our foreign policy, mm -hmm. about the way the government conducts itself, especially in areas in which it's unpopular, mm -hmm. that the outsourcing is i don't know so i wrote my first book about about brexit and about neoliberalism and yeah. and sort of that the rise of that over the last 40 years and yeah. that sort of outsourcing yes. um culture but it's a it's it's stunning to think that it's been around that much longer yeah. than than that it, you know you you yeah that it's it's the history of it goes back like hundreds of years that that, that system has never been subsumed basically do you know what i mean absolutely i mean this is you know the kind of work that's been established i think in kind of 
radical intellectual circles for a while. So look, people like Tom Nairn and Perry Anderson talk about, you know, how how delusional it is to think that the 300-year project of empire, which completely transformed the material position of this North Atlantic island in the world, mm. didn't have any impact on the actual structures of governments in this country. <laughs> you know, mm. the idea that Westminster was not um, formed and cultivated by this imperial project would be bizarre, you know, if that had happened. Mm. And so when you think about the way in which the Westminster state relates to um, even the administration of public services within the UK and that kind of default um, turn towards outsourcing, I think that that has a line of continuum all the way through to the way in which the imperial project was managed around the world, which was through the outsourcing of the administration and control of these large territories to private capital. It's no coincidence that the UK is the outsourcing capital of the world. This comes because of the way the state has learned to adapt itself. And I think that this is something that we need to recognize when we're talking about the, the legacy of the British Empire. We aren't just talking about statues. We aren't just talking about, you know, oh, is Faulty Towers allowed to be on BBC or, you know, is, um, you know, this deep, but this is how it, the, the conversation has been run. And, mm -hmm. and it's also been contributed a little bit by people from the left as well, that there is a, there is a kind of, it feels to me that almost that's seen as a kind of easy target mm -hmm. that we can be like, oh, you know, BBC Last Night of Proms shouldn't sing Rule Britannia, shouldn't sing Land of Hope and Glory. You know, and that allows uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg to be like, it should sing Land of Hope and Glory. Yeah. And then he's representing mm -hmm. British patriotism. But yeah. if you shift the conversation to, yeah, um, what's Britain doing about the way in which its colonial outposts are serving as offshore of wealth, you know, mm. tied to the global minimum tax rate conversation, mm. tied to the Panama Papers and all those releases, then someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, who we know has his companies registered in the Cayman Islands, can't play that role anymore. He can't come up to Parliament and be like, I'm the great defender of the British people. Because mm. they're like, no, hang on a second, all your money's in the Cayman Islands, I'm in Singapore. So I think there's a real political... Um, uh, usefulness to, sh to and I think there's been some great work done talking about the kind of symbolic and identity element of the legacy of the British Empire and I don't want to erase all of that mm. but I think that it has become quite easy for this government that as you've mentioned with your work has been really skillful in managing both its presentation of itself as kind of um, you know uh, a really kind of nativist nationalism as mm. well as um, you know, handmaidens of a kind of accelerated neoliberalism. Yeah. They've been able to play that easier because the conversation on empire has been based upon culture and identity. When we shifted onto, you know, economics, finance, law, mm. and, you know, inequality, it's a lot harder for them to do that. So would you say that's the the key focus, or not the key focus, the like the main legacy of the of the empire is that outsourcing free marketeer and sort of, I don't know what the word is, that that, that economic legacy essentially is the, the main, the, the thing that we should be focusing on. Well, I think that's what was really preserved through the period of decolonization. Mm -hmm. What I try and do in the book is really look at what happened with decolonization. Like decolonization, to think of the 20th century without thinking about decolonization as a, as a, as a, as a you know, legislative process for me is as nonsensical as thinking about the 18th century without thinking of the importance of the American or French Revolution. 
I mean, decolonization is the process through which three quarters of the world transform their sovereign position mm. from subject colonies into sovereign nation states. That is a massive world-changing moment yeah. by anyone's anyone's measure. And we, again, tend to ignore that, particularly in the UK, even though UK is one of the main actors of this transformative moment. Mm. A lot of places are gaining their independence from Britain. And what happened, I think, you know, and this is what I try and trace during the book, during decolonization was there was a handing back of the powers of sovereignty to your Ghanas, your Nigerias, your Jamaicas. But at the same time, there was a reinforcement of the material of the of the financial and economic architecture of empire. Mm. So there was a reinforcement of the because uh, decolonization presents an essential problem to a transnational empire, which is if I am the Anglo-Iranian oil company and my business model functions through the extraction of oil refineries in the Abadan region of Persia, and then the trans the sale of them all around the world, and then the housing of those profits within the United Kingdom. If there's now 20 different sovereign governments that I need to go through to facilitate that process, mm. rather than just one empire, that's now a serious problem to me. And so what happens during the years after decolonization was the limitations of the powers of sovereignty, the limitations of the powers of sovereignty to challenge transnational capital and the reinforcement of the transfer of property, the um, ability to avoid tax obligations, the um, ability to transfer asset classes all around the world. All of those changes created the world that I think we're in today, where Obviously, the devastation and loss of sovereignty was strongest in what we call the Global South. But we're now feeling that even here in the core of the mm. capitalist project in Britain, the United yeah. Kingdom. I thought it was fascinating that the Brexit debates, the main kind of rallying call was take back control. We need our sovereignty back. Yeah, you know right. I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, like, <laughs> it's like people are feeling that, that there's like, that no matter who we vote for, no matter who we put in, office, there's no ability to challenge transnational capital. Mm. And for me, part of that was through the, the, um, the kind of hamstringing of sovereignty in the decolonized world and the reinforcement of the powers of transnational capital in that decolonial moment. Mm. Um, I say in the book that um, in the decolonization moment, kind of Britain, along with the United States and the rest of the West, kind of treated transnational corporations uh, almost like a uh, a family pet that you say, that you say, oh, you've got to behave in the house. But whenever you're outside the house, you can you can buy whoever you want. You know, you can you can go for a poo wherever you want. Don't worry about it. And now we're in the stage where we've now got a pet in the house that's biting and pooing all mm. over the house. And we're like, oh, how did this happen? Yeah. You know. Mm. That's interesting. You put it like that. Just Naomi Klein talks a lot about that. Where the the where the yeah the shock the, yeah the shock doctrine, where that's been applied overseas Absolutely. and then it turned inward. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. She's brilliant on, yeah. on that. And I think you know a lot of the ideas that I draw upon are, late, are related mm. to this work that you know Naomi Klein has done. Um, you know, people like Quinn Slobodian has done. Um, talking about the way in which the decolonized world was almost used as a laboratory for tactics of neoliberalism that have been accelerated now in 
you know, in, mm. in, in, the, in the core, you know? Yeah. And I think the, the, the empire gives us a real example of that. It gives us an example of what Aimé Césaire, the kind of French poet and philosopher called the boomerang effect of colonization, mm. that stuff happens out in the colonies first and then flies back over here, mm. you know, colonial companies practice outsourcing over in the colonies and eventually they start coming back into the UK, you know? So these are the things that I think, um, it's worth trying to talk about a little bit more. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, it's, it's really interesting that you talk about it in the way that you do in that. So I interviewed uh, Professor James Robinson and Darren Asimoglu, the guy who's, who wrote uh, Why Nations Fail. Mm, I don't know if you know course, it. Of course, yeah. Great, yeah. great book. Yeah. Um, so they talked a lot about how it's the, oh, what's it called? The Iron Law of Oligarchy. Mm. So where if you have one sort of, very abusive extractive power structure in place is like you can knock the head off it yeah. but whoever comes in afterwards is almost guaranteed mm. to just adopt those structures and then like take over that and they're not gonna they're not gonna tear it down because once they're there they suddenly then want to take advantage right. of the power that's at your fingertips yeah, yeah look at all this yeah <laughs> toys. yeah 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 it's like sometimes i whenever people complain uh whenever people are like oh you know twitter shouldn't ban anyone i'm always like in the back of my head thinking i wonder if you'd ban anyone if you could <laughs> it's like you see if they made you ceo for a yeah. day it's like you tell me there's no one you'd yeah. ban? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Facts. No, it's definitely true. And the thing that I think is fascinating is when you actually read a lot of the kind of, especially with this generation of Tory politicians, they say a lot of this kind of third world as the laboratory for the neoliberalism they want to implement in the UK. They say it explicitly. Mm. Like um, part of what I read through in the book is um, the Britannia Unchained mm. um uh, publication that um you know in 2012 when everyone else was caring about the Olympics and was like oh Britain's so liberal and tolerant and multicultural Liz Truss, Pretty Patel, Dominic Raab, Kwesi Kwarteng, mm -hmm. um you know Chris Skidmore, mm -hmm. you know almost the entire now um yeah. kind of foundation of this Johnson government they're mm -hmm. in they're across every major office of state they wrote this book talking about how we need to look at India. Look, mm. look, look at the way in which insecurity um, of poor people in Bangalore drives innovation and drives application. They saw that as the market. They were like, in the UK, the welfare state has made people lazy. Mm. It's made people narcissistic. They called British people the idlers of the world yeah. and talked explicitly about, we need to be looking at India. We need to be looking at, um, you know, the developing world in Africa. That's the model we want to implement over here. And... Um, they see that laboratory thing explicitly. You just mm. have to read it. Yeah. I mean, the, um, I don't know how they can call Britain the idlers of the world. Have they, have they not seen the grifters in the media? Like, they <laughs> work like, hard. Very, <laughs> very true. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if you could give, like, uh, an example of how this would work um, in whatever country you, you think is a good example of it. Mm. But basically, this, this movement from, like, an... Um, like an overtly colonial rule of a country mm -hmm. um, into this sort of neo empire sort of thing that we we have now this like financial empire that yeah. sort of corporate empire however you want to describe yeah. it um, like how what does that transition look like like how does it go from people saying well okay we're gonna leave India or mm -hmm. Malaysia or 
Sierra Leone or wherever. Yeah. And then to that going, then coming back with the corporate side of things and slowly like seeping their tendrils in. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the best examples we can look at is the co-history of Jamaica and the Cayman Islands, which, as I mentioned, were governed during the British Empire as one colony. They were one entity. Um, so, you know, in 1962, the Jamaica side of it gained its independence. Um, and it's obviously starting to become hyper-politicized, you know, tied into a broader kind of, um, kind of black nationalism that ties to pan-Africanism. And, of course, the kind of West... Indian Federation, you get people like Norman Manley, and then you get his son, Michael Manley, who really drives this call for the what he called the new international economic order, which, you know, got passed as a resolution in the United Nations. And when we read that today, um, what was agreed in 1972 is really sounds remarkable today. It's talking about, you know, a commitment towards an end to food wastage and food shortage, um, a permanent sovereignty over national resources for every nation state, mm. um, the ability to regulate and control any transnational corporation that operates within your territory. Um, this is the direction that Jamaica's going in in 1970. And at the same time that that's happening, the Cayman Islands is transformed into this overseas British territory. And so this kind of new type of um, inside-outside relationship with the British state where Britain maintains ultimate sovereign jurisdiction over these overseas territories. You know, the governor is appointed from Westminster. Um, the queen is still the head of state. Um, you know, their foreign policy, defense policy is all determined by the UK. But the UK gives it its own constitution and allows it to take control over business regulation, over um, tax rates, over secrecy laws and about being a secrecy jurisdiction. And so the Cayman Islands, um, during the time, it's fascinating. When you look at, you know, in 1960, when it was established, there was, I think, two banks on the whole island. Um, it was infested with mosquitoes, um, so it was seen as almost uninhabitable. Um, <laughs> you know, outside of the few fishing um, industry that was in there and a few passing tourists, it was almost non-existent. Now, it's one of the financial centers of the entire world because it allowed itself to mutate into this offshore jurisdiction, this place in which it would use um, secrecy trusts, it would use hyper-low tax rates, it would use, um, you know, uh, allowing people to become beneficiaries whilst being protected from the public registry, all of these things to attract a transnational asset class that was, like I mentioned before, nervous about what increased sovereignty meant. Increase, you know, decolonization, we need to remember, meant that lots of people all around the world who had been living wonderful, very luxurious lives in Nairobi or in Lagos or in Mumbai suddenly went, I'm not sure this is going to work out too well now that the natives are in power. You know? And they also didn't want to come back to Europe at the time because Europe was in the midst of kind of social welfareism. Mm. You know, Howard Wilson had tax rates that are unthinkable nowadays, you know, 95%. Yeah, right. And so they needed a third option. And the third option presented themselves with places like the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, and Bermuda that allowed themselves to become these type of jurisdictions that appealed to transnational corporate interests. And that's had a transformational impact on the world. You know, um, nowadays, every country, even the United Kingdom, has to reckon with the danger of saying we're going to overly regulate these companies mm. because there's always the idea that, well, they'll just take their money and move to the Cayman Islands. If we hype up taxes too much, 
Wealthy individuals are just going to take their money and move to the Cayman Islands. Capital flight, there used to be a developing world problem. Yeah. It's now becoming everywhere world problem. Yeah. I was stunned to learn, actually, and I'm pretty sure it was in Owen Jones's book, the establishment and how they get away with it. He's hilarious. He's blocked me on Twitter now, which is oh, amazing. Really? I don't know why, because I never replied to him or anything. He's just like straight up like blocked me, but I don't know. Because um, I really love his book. Yeah. But I did. I, I'll speak. I, I'll, I'll, when next time I speak to him, I'll mention it. <laughs> no, because I, I, I'm always baffled by Owen Jones because that book is unbelievable. Yeah. It's so brilliant. And like in the way that they he, he lays out, yeah, essentially how our ruling class maintains their their yeah status and power um and then i look at the things he writes on twitter and i'm like this is not the same person like, you know there's like there's like book like well like serious, serious and then there's like twitter troll person like, that happens to so many people and i mean i'm probably twitter, guilty yeah, of it twitter brings out the worst in all of them yeah it really does like sometimes i'm like if you you wouldn't say these things to people's faces, but I mean, I guess I'm probably guilty of that too. <laughs> but do you have an example um, perhaps of uh, where a country has like successfully managed to have some sort of challenge to the power of transnational capital? Like, if, is there something that we can look at as a, a hopeful example? I think, I think what I will try to do in this book is return back to people who may not have been successful, but who definitely gave tools and building blocks to try and challenge that. So I already mentioned, you know, the, the kind of story of, of Michael Manley's Jamaica for me is the precursor of neoliberalism, you know, um, the organization of kind of all these third world countries in international institutions like the United Nations to try and gain control over transnational capital is the thing that propels um, the kind of response with Thatcherite, um, Reaganite politics in order to try and undercut that and again entrench the power of transnational wealth. Um, there's a fantastic um, conference in Cancun, the only North-South conference that happened in, in the 20th century, um, which is just after Reagan's elected and Thatcher goes over there and essentially kills the new international economic project dead. Um, but returning back to the work and the conversations that they had, I think does provide us resources because in that moment, it was again always seen only seen as a problem for the third world you know mm -hmm. the idea of um you know um corporate dominance over public services was seen as a problem in the third world and was seen as a problem of their developments this idea of development i think is really crucial the idea that they're struggling with that now but that one day they're going to develop out of that and they're going to be look modern nation states that look more like the west in the 1960s and 1970s um you know, this is what happened when people like Kwame Nkrumah talked about, you know, yeah, the dominance of companies like the Ashanti Goldfields Corporation mm. in independent Ghana. They said, well, you know, that's part of your development. You're a young nation state. You're going through the stages of history. Eventually, you're going to be in a position where the government's strong enough to control these, these nation states. Instead, I think that boomerang effect that Amy Cesare talked about is what's happened. Rather than um, those countries starting to gain control over the those corporations and starting to look more like, you know, um, strong welfare states, you know, minimum wage implementations, um, strong labor rights, all the things that the UK and, and particularly continental Europe had in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, we're seeing the other thing happen. We're seeing um, informal precarious work spreading mm. in the UK. We're seeing, um, mm. you know, the capture of the parliamentary process by transnational capital. I mean, COVID-19 made this explicitly clear, you know, in the 
peak of a public health crisis, what did the government do? It couldn't get PPE to its healthcare workers, but it could give out rich contracts to all of its friends at Circo. And you know what I mean? So we're seeing some of those developments, you know, things that 20 years ago would have, you know, and even now, if it happened in Ghana, where, you know, my family's from or in Nigeria, you know, this will be seen as, oh, this is corruption. You know, mm. David Cameron famously tells the Queen in 2016, um, and he's recorded, where he's going, we've got the Nigerian delegate over here, you know, terribly corrupt. You know, and, and then now, <laughs> Cameron, you know, what's, what's, what's uh, corruption? That, that seems to be your thing. Trying to get, you know, money for your friends at Green Sill. And, but I, but I, I, I want to avoid that, that mere assumption of hypocrisy and say, well, they're, they're just as corrupt as the others. Mm. For me, it's not so much corruption, it's the shifting scales between sovereign power and transnational capital power. Mm. And this is what I want to get to the core of the book, is that I think what's really interesting about the conversation of empire and decolonization, which is linked to the material basis of today, is that in that moment, for me, the two steps I would say is empire was using transnational capital to enrich the West at the expense of the rest of the world. Mm. Decolonization was the moment in which governments in the West said, we're going to try and protect the capital element of empire by undermining the sovereign element of the newly independent countries. And I think that the moment that we're in now in the 21st century is now, you know, the West realizing that this is a bit of a Frankenstein monster. Yeah. That by empowering transnational capital to undermine, you know, the sovereign powers of places in the third world, we're now in a world where even countries like the UK and even the US are really struggling to be able to put the reins on the power of multinational capital. Mm. So do you think it's a case of so the 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 foundations of the sort of wealth of the the West as such and it's not a great term but yeah mm -hmm. the foundations of it were built sort of through these these yeah massive companies through the the 15 16 17 1800s yeah. and then um governments were happy enough to unleash though those powers basically upon the rest of the world yeah. and then when that started rolling back as the the yeah different places around the world like achieved yeah democracy and some level of independence yeah. that then the government's had had gone along thinking that they were the ones letting the corporations loose. Yeah. And instead they've turned around and suddenly they're being like they've realized that they were being dragged around by the dog and now it's kinda of like that, you know, they're they're running around trying to get a hold of it, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. That's really the kind of metaphor that I think is 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 essential and and it's one that I think can allow the topic of empire to no longer be as divisive as it seems to have become because when we talk about the kind of corporate and material aspect of empire when we talk about you know overseas tax havens and offshoring mm. all of a sudden we're not talking about something that is divisive it's, yeah you know people it's are pretty unanimous that they're like we're kind of sick mm -hmm. of following 2008 your Goldman Sachs has been able to avoid a tax um, bill with um, HMRC because they could essentially hold them over a barrel and be like, listen, if you force us to pay this, we're going to disappear into one of these offshore places. Um, you know, people are sick of, um, you know, outsourcing where um, in the midst of a pandemic, places like Serco, despite having failed with prisons and immigration detention centers and everything else, are immediately given control of a test and trace service and then fail with that specifically as well. Um, 
and at the end of the year, they can say we've got record profits, whilst individual people, you know, have to deal with having to bury their 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 um their um lost loved ones. Um, and so this kind of legacy of empire is not as divisive as simply pretending that Edward Colston is just um a, you know a, a statue and a member of history, and it's about erasing history. It's about no, who was this person? What? Was his role he was a director of a colonial corporation one that was particularly egregious because it's it's it wasn't trading oil or gold or trading mm. human beings and um that type of corporation has created a world in which those who are struggling with um essentially the feeling of disempowerment in britain today this mm. inability to change the material circumstances no matter who they vote for that is linked to the entrenchment and empowerment of transnational capital. Mm. Yeah. And people wonder why all the Gen Zers are just building the metaverse and their 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 DAOs, the decentralized autonomous organizations. <laughs> it's just like they've just they've looked at it, I think, and just gone, nope. Yeah. We'll just make our own thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> of course. But you know, the, 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 this contemporary moment, I think there's, this, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, take the, the kind of Colston protest where mm. people were like, why are all these young people all of a sudden um, being openly hostile to the legacy of the British Empire? You know, have they been brainwashed? Is it Marcus Rashford's fault? Is it, you know, like, this, like, this is the story people will say. You know, <laughs> who's done this? Who's, who's, who's doing this? And there's no connection with the idea that now, because of the way transnational capital has been insulated from the risks and unpredictability of democracy, individual people are being left ashore. Mm. Like, general generations know that no matter how much they work, they're never going to be able to afford property because the asset class has been insulated and has elevated to such an extent mm. that the links between global wealth and work have been severed. They mm. know that you know, security of permanent contracts is almost impossible. The ability to start a family is also possible. And I think that they're suspecting that the economic system that is leaving them behind is linked to the history of empire of people like Edward Colston, who ran companies like the Royal African Company. Mm -hmm. And so that is why they are no longer as invested in things like empire. It's not just because you know, of morality. And I think this is what I'm really trying to push towards. The empire isn't just a topic around morality, you're a good person or you're a bad person. It's about how do we arrange the resources of the world? That's what empire was at the start. And that's what its legacy still is today. Mm. Part of me, sorry, I'm going to, I'm going to play a bit of, bit of devil's advocate here for, for the, for the last couple of questions. So part of me um, wonders if that obsession with the statues Mm -hmm. rather than the sort of thing that you're talking about here yeah. is because it's all it's it feels easier yeah. to tear down a statue yeah, than to challenge the the influence of <laughs> transnational capital <laughs> it does it does but you know one thing i try and explain as well in the book is that the the instruments of the second empire the nicholas saxon and stuff talk about mm. do remain in the uk mm. like the UK continues to have sovereign authority over the Cayman Islands. We know with the history of the UK government in places like the Chagos Islands and the Turks and Caicos Islands that when the UK government wants to, it can go to its overseas territories and just say, we're taking over, we're changing everything. Um, the highest court of these overseas territories remains the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council. So they still, 
in terms of the final appeal for what we might consider to be illegal in these territories have to come to a British court in order to get that final judgment. And so if we had a government in the UK that said, we're not having this anymore, we are going to shut down the ability for companies to be able to use our overseas territories as offshore warehousings, that could happen tomorrow. Mm. It's just not a topic as part of UK political discussion because mm. we're all still arguing about, you know, whether 40 Towers should be allowed to be on BBC or not. Yeah. Um, if, yeah. <laughs> if, if, if that was a real issue, if someone was to run for government saying, if I get elected, one of the first things I'm going to do is stop British overseas territories being used as offshore tax havens, that could still happen through Britain's parliamentary and legislative system. And so it it's not as easy as pulling down uh, a statue of Edward Colston. You know, that statue came down like nothing. I was yeah. like, what's it made of? Yeah. <laughs> it's oh, which is amazing. But it, is, it, it isn't impossible either. It's the British laborers, you know, yeah. the, the idlers of the world. Exactly. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that, um, the other thing that, that is in my head when, mm -hmm. when we're talking about the, the, the sort of financial legacy of, of the empire mm -hmm. is, there's like one, obviously, Empire was not good. <laughs> um, but for me, I think the, the thing that's really struck me actually of late is the, the idea that the thing that's lifting the most people out of poverty throughout the entire world mm -hmm. um, faster than we actually even believed was possible is, is was, well, has been consumer capitalism over mm -hmm. the last hundred years or so. And that kind of goes hand in hand with the, that legacy of empire in a way that we've like exported our capitalist system in well along with its obvious flaws as well but that there's i don't know i i guess that my point is that people could have a discussion about empire mm -hmm. with saying look here's the good things that britain has done for the world but mm -hmm. you know guys come on like let's look at all the awful things we yeah. did at the same time yeah. do, do you think there's like room for that kind of way of looking at it or is that like a I don't know, being naively optimistic about how much influence that had on in a positive way. I mean, this is the thing I really try and avoid. I think so much of empire has been talked of in these moral terms. Was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Mm. You know, was it good that Britain built the railways? Was it bad that, you know, they massacred the Mau Like it's all yeah. put face in these moral terms. And what I'm trying to do with this book is talk about in terms of the material basis. So, so talk about in terms of at the moment, we are in a period of global capitalist crisis. People feel that, um, you know, long-term wage stagnation, um, mm. the, um, like I say, massive divergence between the world of wealth and the world of work, the fact that so many of the global cities in the world are just literally unlivable mm. for regular people. You know, it's almost impossible, no matter what profession you have, to be able to have a comfortable life in a London or a San Francisco mm. or a New York. Dublin. Um, you know, exactly, yeah, of course, worst, Dublin yeah. as well. Um, Mumbai, Johannesburg. Um, this kind of divergence between a, a world of acid owners and, and the kind of left behind, or almost kind of like H.G. Wells, you know, two-tier mm. globe yeah. um, is a issue that cannot be resolved for me without confronting the way in which the history of particularly the British Empire has given 
this version of neoliberal neoliberal capitalism particular form mm. and so i don't think that's you know erasing um the ability for people to trade mm. you know the role of the market in society but where people discuss things like the impossibility to seemingly stop um private capital consuming more and more of the british state year mm. after year so even in the midst of a global pandemic everything has to be delivered through private capital hands that couldn't be confronted without thinking about the way in which the history of the british empire affected people around the world mm. you know and connecting the idea of changing the material conditions in the uk leveling up as the the current government would say with changing the material conditions of people around the world mm. you can't have control of the um, tax obligations of multinational companies in the UK without erasing their ability to essentially hopscotch around the world mm. and find lower jurisdictions that needs to be across the board. You can't improve the bargaining power and labor rights of people within the United Kingdom without improving the bargaining and labor rights of people across the world mm. because companies would just go, well, yeah. you let us um, devastate the labor rights of people in Nigeria, mm. so we're just going to move the factory over there, because there we can pay them two pence an hour. But obviously, if you want to keep that factory in Sunderland or mm. keep that factory in Burnley, then you need to ensure that there's you know, more e equity and equality all across the world. Mm. And so that's really what I'm trying to push for with this book, rather than um, say to people, um, you should feel good about the empire, you should feel bad about the empire, because, yeah. you know, it always gets tied to, um, like you say, feelings of identity and patriotism. And you have people who, I'm always like, your life would have been terrible under the empire, defending the empire, you know what I'm saying? Like people forget how working class white English people were treated in the empire. They used to, they used to have, you know, you'd look at the history of people like the McPherson sisters, who mm. used to have houses um, in places like Liverpool, in Dublin, in Glasgow, and in London, where they would just take poor white kids away from their parents, often without even telling their parents, and send them to um, Australia, Canada, to live lives of indentured servitudes. And this happened, you know what I mean, up until the, like, early 20th century like this is how white working class people were treated in the empire yeah. but when you talk about it in identity terms you have people feeling like well this is you're a, you're a, you're attacking who i am mm. and who i need to be and i you know and saying that i'm from a place that isn't good people yeah i think when you talk about it in material basis you kind of remove that that moral debate and so yeah. that's what i'm trying to push towards yeah no that's it's definitely a really really great way to try and reframe that discussion because i think you're a hundred percent right because the people who are benefiting most from that culture war fight about everything from the, the colston for watch you know all the people who are all about the the rule of the british courts and the rule of law like <laughs> then suddenly think, well, what, what, hang on they disagree with us yeah. what <laughs> exactly was it insane yeah. but um that that yeah the people who who are benefiting most from the division are the people who are yeah benefiting from us not talking about the fact that there is like a yeah that transnational class of of just corporations and um politicians to an extent and just the, that whole revolving door of like i don't know i hate using the words the global elite because it's so like yeah. tied to so many crazy That's people but sad, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's essentially what we have in a way. And I guess it's maybe, maybe like the, what we're seeing now in Britain is people going from feeling that they were the beneficiaries of this system to the victims of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a certain element that the um, kind of 
And I think that, you know, this is, again, something that I think on the left people really lose focus on. People all often say, um, you know, oh, well, you know, you can't talk about the kind of experience of poverty in places like the UK because it's so much better than the experience of poverty in places like Ghana or Nigeria. But that's, that's not relevant to someone who is seeing their living standards fall mm. year after year. <coughs> Sorry. And um, making them understand that that feeling of kind of decrease in their relative standards across the world is tied to the extraction of wealth, which is tied to histories of empire. I think that's a good way of understanding mm. the separation between patriotism and empire. Mm. <coughs> yeah. Like I said, you know, empire driven by the East India Company, Royal African Company, Royal Niger Company, Howard Hudson Bay Company, these are not patriotic institutions. <laughs> these are not about the glory of Britain. They're about facilitating armed robbery around the world, about getting resources from every corner of the world and transferring it back to where they are. Um, the idea that working class people in South Shields and Rochdale should feel that they need to defend the legacy of the Royal African Company, to me, means that we've done a really poor job of explaining what the Royal African Company was. This is not, you know, this is not the English football team. Like, yeah. not celebrating yeah. England. Yeah. Like, they're a private Insulting company one company from the history world. of Britain doesn't suggest that you're insulting the entire nation. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, to, to finish up here then, um, as I know you have to go, um, how would you propose that we start to have this discussion with kids in in school? Like, what age would you teach them? How would you go about doing this? And like, how do we introduce this idea into um, yeah, into educating people? Because I I know that I'm in fact I'm sure that the, the British cabinet would be delighted. <laughs> Uh, for, for the people of Britain to learn how they've been fucking us for 400 years. Um, so how do we how do we get this, yeah, into I mean, people's heads? The conversation, I mean, it is really scary when I speak to some teachers in schools who talk about this real kind of culture of fear, particularly since Kemi Badenoch last year started talking about how, you know, if you're talking about race and empire in the wrong way, they're going to consider that against the law. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're a teacher, you're just like, what's the, like, what's the point? Like, why would I take the risk? It just takes one student to be like, you know, I feel this is, uh, you know, attacking me. And then all of a sudden you've lost your job. Um, but I do think it, it is essential, especially as, um, you know, just even in explaining the, like the demographics of, of, of most classrooms, you know, to explain to students, you know, why are you in classrooms with people called, you know, Fatima and, you know, Kojo and, you know, that, that there's a history that brought people from Egypt mm. and Nigeria and Botswana and Singapore and India and Pakistan into this classroom. These are, these are stories and pathways. And so I think that could be a way of introducing these conversations and then making people more familiar, like I say, of these kind of, depoliticized and um, invisibilized actors to be like, you know, one of the most significant actors in, you know, British history is the East India Company. It's 
still estimated in the age of Google and Amazon to have been the largest private company that's ever existed. Really? We should, we should know who they are. We should know who some of the directors are. We should know what they did. We should know what their impact was in India as well as their impact back in the UK. You know, these are some of the things that should be discussed in our history classes. And, um, you know, when students start to get a bit older and start to do, you know, I guess, yeah, economics and stuff like that. Um, I think, you know, law, I think it's amazing that in the UK, we don't have any discussion around our kind of parliamentary system and structure. You know, you go to every other country, you go to America, four-year-olds are reading out the constitution with a hand on their heart. Um, in the UK, we, you know, I have students who will come to the first day of a university class and not know Britain has an unwritten constitution. No idea, I've never thought about it wouldn't know the the House of Lords and its relationship with the upper house to, mm. to the House of Commons, wouldn't know the constitutional role of the monarchy, definitely wouldn't know about the Privy Council and the way that it acts as the final court for so many parts of the world, wouldn't know what the Commonwealth I is. I didn't even know who's, that. <laughs> you know, who's in the Commonwealth? Um, all these things, wouldn't know about Ireland, wouldn't know anything about Ireland, even though it's right next door mm. and the history of it goes up until 1997. Yeah. And so these things, I think, have to be discussed in, in, in you know, in schools, um, you know, a kind of, yeah, um, I don't want to say like a constitutional law class, but something along those lines, I think, mm. should be part of the education and help people understand, you know, you know, if you can vote at 18, you should know what's the the political system you're voting in for. What is yeah. your parliamentary system and how does that relate to the history of empire? Because it really does. Mm. And so those are probably the two things I would say is worth introducing into, into school children. Well, I hope we do. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Um, I'd love to see people be, people discuss that side of it mm. because that's the, that's the unifying bit, mm. you know? Yeah, hope so. Yeah, we, we, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Maybe when the book comes out and loads of people tell me they hate me, I'll be like, it wasn't so unifying after all. <laughs> and I'll see. Uh, and I'll see. Yeah. I misunderstood. Maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Well, uh, I'm optimistic for you. Thank you. I think the book sounds like it. If anyone actually reads it, that couldn't possibly be divisive in the way that people probably want it to be. So, yeah. But um, yeah, links for that will be in the description below. Um, do you want to like point people towards any of your work or like where you find you and, um, and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I'm on Twitter, so you can just look for Kojo Karam. And yeah, um, um, yeah. Uh, anyone who reads the book and wants to chat to me, I'd really appreciate it. So thank you, and thank you for having me, Josh. Yeah, not a problem, man. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.